Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, director of the Center for Climate and Security, Aaron Sikorsky, on climate change and national security. One of the challenges we face in the U.S. with getting action on climate change is because the country is so big that every person experiences climate change in a different way. You've got to show them why it will help them do their core duties and their job better. You're not teaching them how to be tree huggers or environmental activists or, or whatever it may be, but you're making it relevant to people's core mission. In movies and TV, it's an acute event. It's a big disaster that decimates everything all at once. I think the challenge is that with climate change, that's not really how it works, right? And that's not dramatic, and it doesn't, it doesn't make for good TV. Aaron, welcome to Chatter. Thanks. Good to be here, David. It has been a long time since I've seen you face to face. And of course, I've, I've seen you on television and, and we've interacted virtually, but it's probably been 15 years since since we were face to face back. <laughs> You're making in, me feel old. Yes. <laughs> days. Well, the difference is you haven't aged, whereas I've aged the full 30 <laughs> years for both of us. Uh, this is a great time to have this conversation that I've been hoping to have with you on Chatter for some time because... There's a lot in the news in the last couple of months that show this intersection between uh, climate change issues and national security so vividly that it's it's hard not to pay attention to it uh, if you're paying attention to any news at all recently. But let's let's go back to you know where we where we first met. Uh, why did you get into the intelligence business in the first place? What drove you to that? Sure. Well, you know, I ended up in the intelligence community because I had been working at the State Department and doing some work on small arms and light weapons cleanup and realized there was an ability to have even more impact uh, in, in the intelligence world on these topics. And I got to know some really smart people working in the counterterrorism world, and it just seemed like a great place to both pursue my interests in international security, but then also see tangible results of, of the work I was doing. And so after grad school in New York, I ended up uh, coming out to Langley and, and working on counterterrorism, and it just really was um, an amazing, amazing place to put into practice what I'd been studying in the classroom, if you will. So, And counterterrorism at that time there's this mythology out there that after 9-11, the entire CIA and, and most of the intelligence community, like everybody shifted to working on counterterrorism and forgot that there were countries like Russia and China and, and, and elsewhere. And that's not entirely true. There, there clearly was a big shift of resources and a lot of personnel working on counterterrorism, but the rest of the world was still being analyzed and, and still being covered for policymakers, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, but your slice was counterterrorism. Uh, what did you like about working in that field within the intelligence community? Sure. I mean, I loved the ability to work with some of the smartest people that I'd ever met, frankly, and and going after hard problems. Um, and and I felt what we were doing was making not only the United States safer but the world safer. I spent a lot of time focused on East Africa and the Middle East, and I saw, you know. I thought I, I just felt like I was having an impact. And that's what I really, really liked about it. Did you find even back at that time that, that you were thinking about some of the, the bigger issues that you work on now in terms of the intersection between longer term trends 
particularly climate related trends and national security or or was your was your focus so narrow on what you were working on that those issues didn't really bleed in well it it definitely came up and as i you know progressed in my career as i went on to lead teams that were looking at conflict and security risks in east africa in the middle east i mean climate and environment issues kept coming to the the fore as something that were driving uh, security risks in the in those regions. I mean, you can't talk about Somalia or Ethiopia or Kenya without talking about right, right. Uh, climate and environment issues. And so, uh, you know, for me, it was one of those things where it was kind of this slow <laughs> realization that, hey, wait a second, if we want to get this right, if we want to be able to warn policymakers about what's going to happen in the future in these regions, we got to in- integrate climate and environment data and information. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're going to miss things or get things wrong. And so that it was kind of an evolutionary wake up call for me as to what was really behind um, the security dynamics in these places. I'm going to posit a theory here without having thought through it, which is risky. <laughs> but what, what you just said makes me wonder whether you were in an area that was more ripe for policymakers and intelligence officers alike to factor in environmental and climate issues because the community, especially in African studies, that community, more than studying many other parts of the world, has historically had to bring in so many different societal factors and is more open than some of the more hardcore security issues like studying Cold War military balance issues or Chinese technology development. It seems like, and please tell me if I'm right or wrong here, but it seems like you were in a place to really develop that at the right time because the community of people were already used to considering factors not considered hardcore realist security issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a little bit for better or for worse, right? I mean, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa has long been on kind of the lower end of attention and focus for security issues. And so in some ways, you have more freedom then uh, to bring in new ideas and, and different theories, but also because you're right, because that is part and parcel of how African studies and, and folks have looked at, at the region. Um, so I think there was more opportunity there. And there's been a lot of work by the environmental peace building community for many years looking at conflict and in the region. And also just because that those are the countries that are suffering from climate hazards sooner uh, and more intensely than a lot of other parts of the world, right? So you see it happening there in a sure. way you don't see it. Well, you hadn't seen it happening elsewhere. Frankly, now you're seeing it everywhere. But um, at the time, I think, uh, yeah, it was more for the reasons you lay out and and for just the fact that it was it was tangible um, in a way it wasn't perhaps other places. Help us understand at a, a general level, help us understand how the intelligence community came to be looking at issues like the environment and climate, because that's not in the top 10 list of when the general public thinks of CIA, of <laughs> topics that are going to be coming up. And yet through your your career, you progressed into issues of you know global issues and societal issues as they impacted politics and security. And there is actually a pathway there. Talk us, talk us through that. How did you and the institution around you start to look at these environmental and climate issues uh, more carefully? 
Sure, sure. So, you know, I mean, you're right. The intelligence community has actually looked at at climate and environment issues for, for many years now. And I think it was back in, I want to say, 2009 at uh, Congress's behest, they wrote the first uh, big, it wasn't a national intelligence estimate, it was a national intelligence, I forget the title, it was, it was similar to a national intelligence like estimate NIE, on... Like- <laughs> yes, exactly. On on climate and environment issues um, and, and the security risks they pose. And that came out of the National Intelligence Council. Uh, I mean, you've had folks looking at, as, as you were describing, these other factors that shape societal fragility, that shape governance risk around the globe. Um, and so they've brought in experts over the years on water, on environment to, to look at these topics. Um, so it's always been there. On the analytic side, I think what's also interesting is you had kind of a, a post-Cold War moment when the intelligence community was actually using its resources to help the climate science community um, do a better job of understanding changes over time. So there was a program called Medea that uh, former Vice President Al Gore was was very involved in and in, in pushing where to use. Uh, overhead imagery capacity of the U.S. You know, the Cold War is over. What are we going to use all these tools for? Oh, one thing we could use it for is doing comparisons of how the the climate in the world has has changed. And so that program was ongoing for a long time, linking the science community with the intelligence community. Um, I think what's interesting now is we're actually in a different part where the intelligence community needs more from the scientists than the scientists need from the intelligence community and right. in, in right. understanding these challenges. But but there's a long history there. And as you well know, I mean, all source analysts bring in information from all different places to tell the president and tell senior policymakers about the world. And so, you know, omitting climate and environment information would um, would be a dereliction of duty, right, in terms of, of telling the whole picture. I, I think, I will say, I think there are ways the intelligence community can strengthen that work um, and, and have been working to, to strengthen it. But it's it's been an ongoing theme for, for decades. You know, it seems to me there's a parallel here and it's not a, a perfect one on one to one match, but be- between the way that the intelligence community was looking at these issues as they evolved after the cold war and the way that it looked at global health issues, mm. because issues like pandemics and other issues having to do with health, they, they certainly existed in the world for all of human history, but as an intelligence topic, not so much of a topic during most of the Cold War. But then after the Cold War, and especially in recent years, you've had a realization of exactly what you talked about, which is the intelligence analyst realizing we need to understand some of these issues, um, but we need to we need to bring the scientists in. We need to get some of the science, and hopefully we can contribute to them too. I remember mm. Dr. Uh, Julie Gerberding um, was with an event at the Hayden Center where we were talking about these global issues. And she was talking about the fact of, yeah, you know, having intelligence analysts in places like the CDC is a great idea. And Mm -hmm. having a way to share that science with the intelligence analysts, that's just good government. Did you did you see the evolution of that kind of caring is sharing idea (laughs) from the intelligence community, which traditionally is rather closed to other agencies and departments? Did you see that evolving during your time looking at global issues? I did. I did. And I saw, you know, especially 
in when I was working on the National Intelligence Council and working on the Global Trends Project. I mean, that was part and parcel of that work of making sure we were bringing in all different viewpoints and and leveraging other parts of government, right? Um, and realizing that it wasn't just the secrets that were important to intelligence, but it was pairing those secrets with other uh, information that, say, NASA or NOAA might have, right? Um, I, I think one of the challenges for the intelligence community, and I think it's, an, and not just intelligence, but all, all the national security community in the U.S., is, is building enough scientific literacy amongst that community to know how and when to use this data and integrate it. Because it's not enough, I think, just to hire some, say, scientists to work mm-hmm. uh, at CIA. Right. But you need you know, your regional analysts on various countries to have enough of a, a, a basis in the in the science to be able to to understand it and, and leverage it. I mean, I teach a class now at George Mason on climate change and national security. When I was in grad school uh, years ago now, that that wasn't a course that was available. Right. I mean, and so I think some of it's changing the education of folks coming in, um, integrating that. Uh, but finding ways to partner. The other thing I'll, I'll note is when I, right before I left government, Congress had stood up a, a Climate Security Advisory Council, where they required the DNI, National Security Community, to partner with uh, U.S. scientific agencies in a council to define climate security, make sure there was good information. I chaired the first, I was the first chair of, of this council, and I think that was an important step forward in um, building those bridges and that relationship between uh, the agencies, because we have so much information in government and so much capacity, right? We got to work together to um, to share it and learn from one another. Does that does that council or a, a derivative of it still exist? It does. Yep, it does, and it's run out of uh, the the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Also, since I left government, uh, a National Academies Roundtable on Climate Security has been stood up. By, again, by Congress uh, to inform intelligence and, and the DNI on um, climate security issues. And they brought together academics from across the country who are looking at the issue in different ways to do research and, and support that. So I think there are a lot of good initiatives, um, again, pushed by Congress. But then I know there is support um, from, from the DNI and, and others in, in government now to make those uh, work. The core issues that we're talking about here. I mean, you're, you're not in government anymore, but you started to look at many of these issues before leaving. And now if there's a short list of people who are working at that intersection of national security and climate change, uh, you're on that list. And I would put you at the top of that list. So I want to talk to you about these core issues. So many times when people think about climate change and national security, it is about the trends. It's about the longer term forecast. It's not about a point prediction for something happening tomorrow, which is often the currency in the realm of security studies and uh, intelligence analysis for the short term. So what are these core issues in this intersection that do affect national security decisions even today? Sure. I mean, I usually put my climate security concerns in four buckets if you will, four, four lines of analysis or four areas of concern. And one is the most straightforward is the direct risk to military security services and critical infrastructure. And this, I think, is pretty straightforward. It's things like strengthened hurricanes on the Gulf Coast causing billions of dollars of damage at Tyndall Air Force Base, right? 
uh, its fires in California that force evacuation of military bases and curtailment of training days. Uh, it's the critical infrastructure issues we saw with the heat waves in Europe, in the UK last week or two weeks ago, where a, a, um, a runway in the UK that the Royal Air Force uses at their biggest, uh, their biggest <laughs> airfield, it melted. <laughs> they couldn't fly planes, right? Um, those are all... I think an important category of risk, one that frankly, I think the US Defense Department and NATO and others are very aware of and very committed to tackling because it's all about their, it affects their ability to do their core job, right? Um, they can't fight war, fight and win wars uh, when their equipment is destroyed or they can't leave from bases, they can't train, they don't have logistics. So um, that's one bucket and it's important, but I also think it's in some ways the easiest to, to address for the security community. Um, another bucket of risk is changing the nature of the kinds of duties of militaries and security services. What are they called upon to do? And again, you can look at the, the heat waves in Europe in the past week. Militaries across the continent were deployed to fight fires. Right. Um, and not only within their own countries, but the EU called on neighbor militaries to help out in, in other countries. You're seeing that in the U.S. this week with the floods in, in Kentucky just the past couple of days. The National Guard there is deployed to help. Um, we've had National Guard fighting fires across the West. And, and the number of days and the number of times these troops are called on to do these humanitarian assistance disaster relief missions is just going through the roof. Now, I haven't tracked this nearly as closely as you have, but Aaron, I can't remember a couple of decades ago militaries being deployed in this fashion at this level, and especially neighboring militaries being called in to assist with climate-fueled fires. Is, yep. th is this as novel as it seems? It is. It is. I mean, you know, the defense support to civilian authorities has always been a, a part of what they, the National Guard and the U.S. has done and, and militaries, but, but the pace and the intensity is just uh, through the roof. I mean, you look at the number of person hours that the U.S. National Guard has put into fighting fires in recent years, and like the past five years, it's gone up exponentially. Wow. Um, so, so that's a that's a real security concern as well, because if that's what you're spending your time doing, what aren't you spending your time preparing for? Right? What you only have so many hours in a day, so much time for training, and how do countries and militaries need to think about? Do we need better civil authorities and civil right. response services? right, to manage these threats? Do we need to, to retrain militaries? I mean, so that's another bucket of risk. And still within, within that bucket, there's a flip side, right? So you have militaries being deployed more than ever before to address climate-related um, disasters, if you will. Mm -hmm. But you also have places like in Russia where some military units that would have been used, such as these yep. massive fires in Siberia that are being underreported, but these massive fires, um, many of the many of the resources that would have been deployed to that are being sucked up into Ukraine. So it, yep. it almost works in the opposite direction there. A absolutely, and I think it's a really interesting question. That like, what are the real national security concerns that countries are facing? Right? What do they actually need to be prepared for? What's going to kill their citizens? You know, on this is a bit of a tangent, but on that point about Russia, I thought it was really interesting last February. In one of his public statements prior to the invasion, President Biden noted in his statement, he was speaking kind of directly to Putin, and he said, 
look, you've got fires in your backyard. You've got a burning tundra that is never going to freeze again. That's the risk you need to be worried about. And I thought that was really fascinating that Biden called that out publicly and highlighted that um, for Putin. And it's a real threat to Russia. I mean, the infrastructure they have built on uh, permafrost is greater than any other country Mm -hmm. in the world. That permafrost is melting. It's upending energy uh, infrastructure. It's upending military infrastructure. Often, you know, Russia has relied on that frozen land in the Arctic as a defense mechanism, right, in the north for them. As that ice melts, they're concerned about the security risk from the north. I mean, it's, it's really... Sometimes you read articles saying, you know, Russia's the beneficiary of climate change because they'll have a longer growing season, they'll have more wheat, they can control the food. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if they can get their act together to take advantage of that, but they face real risks too. Um, And I think that's really important in the climate security context. Um, You know, my third bucket of, of climate security risk is how climate change is just reshaping the global landscape and the geostrategic landscape. So not so much the physical risks to, to infrastructure, but how does climate change change state behavior on mm-hmm. the world stage? How does it change challenges to governance in already unstable places, right? How does it change national interests of a country like China, mm-hmm. right? Uh, food security issues, water security. And so that's where I think it's really important that climate change for the national security community, those considerations have to be integrated across all regional strategies and analysis. It can't be off in the climate office or the global issues office, frankly, in the intelligence community where we know it doesn't get the same level of attention and respect as it, as you know, the China office does, but you need someone in that China office who can bring that climate change perspective because that bucket of risk, I think is the most challenging to understand and unpack and where the, there are real strains and, and, and um, challenges to assumptions, right? As you know, in the former intelligence community, we do key assumptions checks all the mm-hmm. time, right? What are the assumptions that underline this analysis? Mm-hmm. Um, and are we getting those assumptions right? Climate change upends all sorts of assumptions. Um, and that I love intellectually this, piece of the puzzle and understanding it, because I think there's a lot of work to be done here. And I think it's that that bucket of climate security risk is is fascinating and important to get right for within, the United States. Within that bucket, as soon as you talk about, you know, reshaping global security issues, I, I feel like I'm immediately drawn to the Arctic because mm-hmm. some of the effects are more visible there, more pronounced there. The geopolitical implications are more uh, short term than long term, although there there are also long term ones. But you bring that up with with China. You know, yes, China. There will be significant effects for China itself. But China declaring itself a near Arctic power and working on icebreakers and trying to move into the polar regions and invest in northern Russia. Um, this is a major geopolitical shift if the current trends continue and make the Arctic into a. An, an area for greater commerce, an area for greater geopolitical competition, opening up the rare earths in Greenland and elsewhere. You've got a whole bunch of issues in the Arctic itself that show all of these buckets, but primarily this third one. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think you've had a conversation with Marisol Maddox before sure. on this topic. She's mm-hmm. wonderful and, and knows these issues really well. Um, I, I 
I worry a lot about the Arctic because, as you know, the, the melting ice opens new opportunities for commerce and for transit and new opportunities for miscalculation, gray zone activity, yeah. right? Especially because Russia and China tend to use commercial activity as a cover for military or government activity, right? Um and and it's a dangerous place to operate still. And ironically, as the ice melts, you're actually getting more <laughs> uh, more ships getting frozen when it freezes again. And because because yep. the ice melts, there's more people operating more there. People they don't there, have sure. the knowledge or actually ability, you know, skills to really operate in the Arctic. Um, and and you're going to have competition for those resources. China wanting to to be a key player there. Because they recognize as well that I think access to these critical minerals in a in a climate changed world is um, a national security uh, priority for them, right? Yeah. And uh, I think the challenge is that the rules of the road that have been set up in the Arctic thus far don't account for a changed yeah. environment there, right. and and that's true in a lot of different places around the globe. That's a that's an example I think of these assumptions, right? We have a lot of international institutions, a lot of international agreements that are rooted in certain assumptions about how the world works and, and climate upends those. And as you say, the Arctic is a place where we're going to see that sooner rather than later. I mean, we are, are And I think already... this is a place where the the effects that we've, we've talked about are, are more tangible for hardcore security analysts, for military planners, mm -hmm. because, I mean, when we grew up, we were talking about the history of things like bomber gaps and missile gaps. And now people are talking about icebreaker gaps, right? Does, does mm -hmm. the United States Navy and Coast Guard have enough icebreakers to conduct essential missions at the poles? And when you're looking at Russia and China being better able to operate in that arena than the United States, that's, that's a very important practical military consideration for resources. You know, what, what do we invest in this new domain that we haven't fully explored in past decades? Now, planners are on top of that. There's many smart people working on this, but I'm not sure that the public debate around it has really evolved to the point that we understand the resource issues that will be coming simply because of this third bucket you're talking about. Right. No, absolutely. And I think you're right that there are um, folks looking at this. I mean, each of the military services has released a, a climate or a, excuse me, an Arctic strategy. The Pentagon's on the hook for a full Arctic strategy uh, in the coming year here. I, what's interesting, though, I think, and, and concerning is last earlier this year, the um, inspector general of the Pentagon released a report where they had examined uh Arctic U.S. military bases in the Arctic, Arctic facilities, and were they meeting the the resilience and, and climate security goals set out for them uh, by the Pentagon, by Congress? And there was a huge gap between what the Pentagon was doing and what was actually happening on the ground, Ouch. right? And I think uh, that is is a key challenge, and especially with this administration leaning so Biden administration leaning so forward so far on, on climate security, which is great. And there's a lot of documents coming out of the Pentagon strategies and reports and plans. The challenge is translating those to the field, right? To the people actually doing the work, making them understand why it's important to bring a climate lens to their work and then sustaining that in the long run. And, and one of my concerns about the national security community is in the U.S. is you just don't have enough personnel 
that have have a climate strong background, if you will. And again, I'm not talking about climate scientists per se, but people who have been educated and, and trained up to understand why climate matters to their job, that sustaining the changes that you make at the high levels in the administration, right. Mm -hmm. For the long run, um, that, that needs to be a key focus. And is that, is that something that you think can be done through in a sense on the job training and people like you educating people in government? That is, we don't, we don't need to get all new people who have degrees in climate security. We can take right. people who are working in the area, but just help them get up to speed on these issues. Right, right. I think you want to do a bit of both, right? You want to, you want to build the bench so you've got people to call on um, as you hire new people, bring people in. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the way you, you're going to train people up is you're going to show them, right, just like anything else, you got to show them why it will help them do their core duties and their job better right? You're not teaching them how to be tree huggers or environmental activists or, or whatever it may be, but you're teaching them, you're a logistician for the military. Well, if you need to get something from point A to point B, and there's a whole bunch more storms coming your way now because of climate change, you're going to have to figure out a different way to do it. Absolutely. And if we can educate you so you can get the information ahead of time when storms are planned, you know, you've got predictive capabilities, you've got warnings, early warning systems, hmm. you're going to do your job better, cheaper, save the U.S. government money. I mean, whatever it is. And so that's, I think, the important thing is making it relevant to, to people's core duties and core mission. Um, and, and same in the intelligence community. Oh, your job is to uh, analyze risks of conflict and instability in X area of the world. Well, here's a tool for you to bring in uh, climate risks in that region. And if you bring that in, you're going to do a better job of warning about right. that risk of conflict. I do I do want to come back to why that is especially hard because of the nature of national security thinking and climate change. But I interrupted your buckets. So close us out. You, you got through three of them before I pulled you off. What, what was the fourth bucket that you put yeah, your concerns the- in? The fourth bucket, I mean, it's, it's, it's connected to the third, but the fourth bucket is, is what I sometimes call the risks of response, right? And this is as we respond to climate change, as we move through the energy transition, um, as countries that have relied on oil and gas to prop up their economies for years, right? As we, as we address climate, there are security risks and instability risks associated with that as well. Um, and I think obviously you've seen this in some of the discussions around uh, energy in Europe uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? And uh, even discussions here in the United States about how quickly we can move away from oil and gas um, and potential challenges there. I think there are things around um, geoengineering, right? Addressing climate change by trying to reflect sunlight in the sky. Uh, right. back. And who does that? Does a country pursue technology like that unilaterally? Or there, is there blowback there? Um, the Wilson Center has a pro- program or a project they call Backdraft, mm-hmm. where they talk about these unintended consequences, maladaptation, right? So there's, yeah. there's risks in that bucket as well. And that all of that is to say we shouldn't move through the energy transition, or we shouldn't try to adapt to climate change or address these issues. But we need to recognize that there are security dynamics there that we need to uh, take into account um, as we as we do this uh, work. And yet, some international institutions really are moving forward on this. I mean, you've written recently about the NATO summit and the mm-hmm. fact that 
NATO, even as Russia's invading Ukraine, even as there's this historic application from Finland and Sweden, even as there are major economic concerns and energy concerns, still, they had some really interesting announcements uh, related to climate and I think an innovation fund, um, mm-hmm. but also left a lot of, of room for things they could do. Talk through that a little bit. What are you seeing in a very traditional institution like NATO and how it is now addressing climate change in a way that gives you hope that security planners are taking this in the right direction? Yeah, yeah. So it's been really interesting. I mean, NATO has looked at climate change for years, but the leadership of of Jens Stoltenberg, I mean, has really pushed it to the top of the agenda. In part, he used to be a climate negotiator, right? So he comes at this understanding the issue really well. But also NATO has recognized that, you know, not only on the continent, but also in places where they do training and, and they've done missions in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? Right. Climate change is shaping uh, the environments in which they're operating. And the fact that Europe and NATO are so reliant on fossil fuels has given Russia and Putin uh, an upper hand in some some cases, right? It allows him to put more pressure on them than if they had uh, more resilient energy systems, mm-hmm. more clean energy systems. Mm-hmm. And so they're really pushing the transformation across the alliance um, both in uh, moving toward more clean energy and, and creating standards across the alliance for interoperability, right, towards that clean energy, but also adaptation, training programs. Um, they've established a center of excellence for climate security, which Canada is going to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've really made the case that, again, this it's not either we deal with Russia or we deal with climate change. It's that we're better prepared to deal with Russia if we address these threats from climate change, because we're our militaries are more capable, more resilient, uh, less beholden to that oil and gas from Russia, and and will be stronger as as a military. So it's it's really been interesting to see. Obviously, NATO can't compel any of its members per se to to do this, and there's some skepticism I think from some Eastern European countries in particular about um, about some of the climate issues. But there's been a real a, a real education campaign and a real push to 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 be a leader on this. And I mean, many, many NATO governments, the UK, France, the United States, Canada have all been leading within their own defense departments as well. And there's there's a lot of collaboration happening there that I think is really uh, a good sign. I saw some bullet point at some point in here about a one billion dollar innovation fund. Do I have that right? Yes, yeah. So, and this isn't only for climate, but it's it's for technology writ large. But with uh, it will include innovation in in green technologies and green energy um, for you know vehicles, right? Electric vehicles or military equipment um, things. NATO wants to be at the forefront. Wants to be able to compete, right, with other perhaps uh, countries around around the globe in this. And recognizing that that technology is key to this resilience and that they can drive the market um, forward on this because of the procurement power that big militaries have. I mean, we're seeing that in the U.S. as well, where the Defense Department, um, you know, has committed to moving to its non-tactical vehicles, all being electric, I believe, by 2035. Right. And that makes a big dent in U.S. emissions, but it also then sends a market signal 
right? That, hey, we're going to buy these cars. There's going to be demand, you know, companies, private sector, you go after this as well. So I think that's an important role for, for militaries is not just the act the absolute number of emissions that they're putting out themselves, but also how they can use their power to shape the broader market uh, in a positive direction. Right. I suspect that you share some of my frustration with events of the last few months in one, in one regard, which is the invasion of Ukraine and the reaction to it among uh, many countries, not all in the world, but, but many countries um, could have been a wake-up call on energy and climate issues uh, far beyond what it has been, with the idea being that analysts such as yourself uh, have made clear that in the long run, there is going to be an energy transition. There has to be an energy transition, and it gets harder the longer we wait to do it. And we do more harm by exploring and opening up new oil fields uh, as we go. So given that there was this invasion, given that there was this uh, boycotts and other issues going on, given that Nord Stream 2 and all, everything happening, what a wonderful opportunity to bite the bullet. It's going to be painful, yes, and, and I'm not minimizing the, the societal consequences and the, the issues for many countries that rely so heavily on oil and gas, especially in, in Europe. But if that transition is coming, let's take this crisis and make it an opportunity bite the bullet, make the big investments you need to invest much more in renewables, to try to decouple the gas and oil industry and hook up a lot of energy connections in alternate ways. And I'm not seeing it. There's increased rhetoric around it, but in terms of actual action, it's much more, what are our alternate sources for oil and gas? Or how can we get through this until the crisis passes and we have a more normal oil and gas market, which kind of avoids the big problem, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're never, I, I think there's always going to be some reason why it's hard to do the energy transition, right? So kicking that can down down the field, it, it never. it's never going to be a perfect time. It's never going to get easier. So I think that that excuse, it just doesn't hold water. I, I do think it's really hard for politicians. And I mean, I'm sure you saw this in your work in the intelligence community all the time. They have such short-term incentives, right? It's maybe we're thinking about two years from now, max is, is their outlook. And it's when you know it's going to be hard on your constituents' pocketbooks and heating prices are going to be high next winter, um, it can be really challenging to rise to the moment, um, which isn't an excuse, but I think it, it helps explain some of the behavior. Um, I, I think... The thing that I, you know, I wrote some op-eds when the invasion first happened and, and talked to a few reporters. And I, I, I think what, you know, what was seen right after the invasion is that you can do hard things quickly. I mean, the fact that Germany reversed itself on rebuilding its military, right, in, in the weeks after the invasion showed that, like, okay, this was a wake-up call and we can, we can shift how we've done business for years because we're concerned about our security. So it's not impossible and it requires big investment. It requires creative thinking. I mean, one of the things I was actually really pleased to see in the, um, in what's, what's it called now, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Manchin-Schumer right. uh, climate right. deal that just came out here in the U.S. a few days ago, is there's big money in there for heat pumps, which are a tool that you can use at your house to reduce your carbon footprint and, and reduce your reliance on gas. 
um, to heat your home or cool your home. And there was a big push from folks for heat pumps for peace, right? If we can install heat pumps quickly across Europe, then there will be less reliance on gas and we won't need uh, to worry so much about Russia and and finding new new gas sources. Um, And so there there are tools at our disposal to do this, um, but they require creativity, they require investment. My biggest concern, I think, you know, I, I sympathize with not wanting folks to be freezing in their homes uh, or really expensive mm-hmm. energy in Europe next winter. Um, but make sure if you're doing things to increase your access to gas and oil in the near term, that it's temporary, that it's not building long-term infrastructure, right? Um, and that you've got some sunset clauses or you've got equal investments in other uh, energy, clean energy sources. I think it means considering nuclear for Germany, right? Uh, again, right. Um, and and you need leaders who will who will make that case too. I think it's and and it's not a I don't think it's that complicated of a message, right? You know that that we need to do this for the long term, and it it's a security. There are security benefits, um, in a variety of of ways. But yeah, I think I think also what you're seeing from Europe that's hard is just the coordination among the different countries mm-hmm. and and getting them all on the same page. Um, I think some you know Germany relies a lot more on on Russian gas than a lot of other countries uh, uh, do. So some countries don't want to make this have to make the same level of sacrifice, right? That that Germany does. So, but you're right. I think it was a a bit of a missed opportunity. And again, like that, there's just not an easier time in the future, right? Sure. It's like dealing with your kids and they don't want to do some task. They don't want to <laughs> unload the dishwasher or do something that they really, really dislike. And it's not, not going to be any easier a couple hours later. Procrastination isn't an effective solution, except in very rare cases, but it always <laughs> feels right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about the U.S. side more specifically. A couple of months ago, you co-wrote in Lawfare an article about next steps that the U.S. government can and should take on climate security. And you you framed that around the report from the Climate Security Advisory Group called Challenge Accepted that had come out this year. Um, talk through that advisory group first, explain what that advisory group is, and then how it evaluated the U.S. government's progress since the last security plan had come out in 2019 and uh, your recommendations from it. Sure. So the Climate Security Advisory Group is a collection of uh, national security leaders, mostly retired um, from U.S. government, but from you know the military, from the intelligence community, from the State Department, uh, from the NSC, who all believe that that climate change is a key national security issue and have ideas and support policies to change it. So we had everyone from William Webster, a former director of the CIA, to a bunch of retired four-star generals, to former ambassadors um, who are part of this group, and former National Intelligence Council uh, leaders, part of this group and signed on to this report of recommendations, um, which you're right, follows a, a report, the Climate Security uh, Plan for America, which was released in 2019, which laid out you know, across the national security apparatus, what does the U.S. need to do to tackle this threat? And so now that the Biden administration had been in office for a year, they put these issues at the top of their list. We wanted to, to give them a scorecard, a report card, if you will. 
on, on how they had done. And, and so we looked at not only what Biden had done in terms of executive orders and, and personnel decisions and policy decisions. We also looked at what Congress had done since 2019. Or so that was under, under President Trump as well. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just kind of went through step by step and, and evaluated. And I would say the, the bumper sticker, uh, uh, snapshot is, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of great talk and now we need some more action <laughs> and, and a lot of reports, a lot of directives, a lot of, you know, this is where we should go. This is what we need to do. Um, and now we're in, in the, and a lot of analyzing the problem, right? I mean, the president Biden required a national intelligence estimate on climate. He required a defense, report on climate. He required all of the agencies to do uh, climate adaptation plans, all the national security agencies. Um, so they, and they did it all and it's, it's good homework they did good work. And now, now comes the harder part, right. Of, of implementation. And I think already, you know, we re- released that report in March, early April. And since then we've seen the budget request from the Pentagon. We've seen other things come through where they're already moving out on, on some of it. Some of it's putting money where your mouth is, right? Funding the programs you say are important. Right. Uh, some of it's training and education, as we were talking about, right? Um, making sure your personnel know why this is important and how to implement. It's strategy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's execution, uh, which doesn't happen overnight. Right. But um, I think we have a good opportunity. If I can talk here for a little little bit about climate security and, and bipartisan support for it, right? I've been talking a lot about the Biden administration and their their leadership, which has been great. But when you look at, you know, a lot of the things you and I've been talking about for the past hour have come out the things like the Climate Security Advisory Council, the National Academies, a lot of the Pentagon resilience reports have come out of the National Defense Authorization Act in Congress, which is a must-pass piece of legislation uh, which supports the Defense Department every year. And that has passed in both Republican-led and Democratic-led Congresses. It's been signed by both Republican and Democratic presidents when it has had climate security provisions in it. Um, And I think there's a recognition across the aisle that the resilience of our military and national security community to climate change, or whatever you want to call it, extreme weather, (laughs) you know, whatever word works for you, is really important and something we need to fund and focus on. And so that was in the scorecard as well in this report challenge accepted to, to highlight that we've seen action um, from, from folks on, on both sides of the aisle, which is, is really important. We've talked on chatter before with Eugene Linden, who has written about climate change and his hope that some insurance industry incentives could actually dramatically move things forward. But in this report, the advisory group talked specifically about the U.S. government's buying power and the fact that there was the opportunity to catalyze broader economy-wide action through things as simple, well, simple, they're very large, not necessarily simple, but through finite programs like the fact that there are some very, very large electricity users within the federal government, the Department of Defense, the Postal Service, just their vehicle fleets alone use significant percentage of U.S. electricity. And if there were to be some major changes, the U.S. government's purchasing power on vehicles alone could have a major impact and affect the overall industry outside of government. 
talk through that element a bit more about the U.S. government's buying power and how it could accelerate some of the initiatives that you've talked about? Yeah. So the Biden administration last December put out an executive order on uh, basically making the on sustainability, federal sustainability, making the federal government carbon neutral. And that executive order is all about exactly what you're talking about, that um, that buying power, the purchasing power with the Defense Department being the biggest dog in the room right on that. And it is things like electric vehicles and, and setting the market for that. It's also one thing I think is really interesting is one of the provisions in that is that um, defense facilities, so military bases, need to be uh, carbon neutral. I think I'm going to get the date wrong, maybe by 2050. But many of those bases are powered by the power grids in in local communities, right? And so if one of your biggest users in your community says, hey, we need to go to, to clean electricity, that drives then that community to make that change, which will not only affect the, the military base, but all of the community. And this happens some places already. There's a military base in Washington state where the uh, community has already moved to clean energy. And so that, that base is already meeting the goal set out in the executive order. So there's one. <laughs> well, there's one. There's one. But that model, I think, is a model that you can use, you can use elsewhere Um, I think there's also things, you know, I mean, sustainable aviation fuel, right? The military, that's one of the hardest things. How do do you decarbonize the jets? (laughs) Um, And if the military is investing in that, that has co-benefits then to commercial uh, airlines as well. Um, Although, I mean, that can go both ways. Um, If there's an investment in, in commercial airlines, that can transfer over to the military. So, uh, throughout history, you know, in the U.S., the military has often been the, the incubator of, of new technologies, new innovations, right? Because of their ability to invest and their procurement power, they can do things then that, that spill over into other parts of society. And there's no reason that can't be the same uh, in terms of clean energy as well. Part of the, the problem is on any given day, the requirement to act isn't there, right? Because you're talking about Mm -hmm. a long-term trend. You're talking about many effects of climate change that are not necessarily the the decisive causal factor for a particular issue, but over time, they build up. And trying to argue that any particular security problem was due to specific climate change is is hard. It's a a bigger, longer-term issue. And you've already pointed out that politicians have an incentive to address short-term concerns. If it's a representative, it's because they're already campaigning for the next two-year cycle. Um, But even policymakers, I don't know if your experience was the same as mine, but, you know, every day when I was briefing the, the PDB, and I mean every day, there was something that was directly relevant to that day, whether it was a meeting that the president was having or a summit somewhere in the world that was of immediate importance or a development with a terrorism investigation, whatever it was, there was always plenty of short-term analysis because policymakers have to act in the short term. I was pleasantly surprised that over the course of of a briefing tour, there were several occasions when there were long-term demographic pieces that made it to the president. And the president wanted to think about what are population changes over the next 30 years going to mean for long-term national security interests? But those were rare. <laughs> that was not an everyday <laughs> occurrence. 
So how do we get both politicians and policymakers who overlap with politicians at some level to care enough about the long term when the incentives are screaming at them to take care of the short term? You know, if we could figure that out, David, <laughs> we'd, we'd be able to solve a lot of problems we'd around the world. Here. But, <laughs> but, but I do think. I mean, I have a couple thoughts there. One is, uh, while you're right that these are long-term problems, I think for better or for worse, people are seeing the changes in their backyard on a more regular basis now, and I think that is having an effect. You know, I'm sitting here in Wisconsin today, which is my my home state where I grew up. And climate change is affecting the hunting season. Yeah. It is affecting um, pests in deer communities, mm-hmm. right? That then can affect hunters. And that is a real concern for people across the spectrum here in Wisconsin. And I think that has an impact on, on local politicians. Um, so, I, so I have some hope that as these changes are happening more frequently, that that's going to change behavior. But I, I also think one tool that I find really powerful, and, and it's, this isn't for you know your most senior level policymakers, it's for the actual implementers, right? The people who, maybe the ambassador level and down, who are doing the work on the ground in certain countries, right? But doing um, tabletop and scenarios exercises with these folks where they can see how their decision process today will affect outcomes in the future related to um, climate threats and climate security can be really powerful, I think, for helping them think through how they need to change their behavior now or change what they're doing today. Again, for something that they may not see the impact of till five, 10 years down the road, but but they've put themselves in a situation, they've been able to put themselves in, in a scenario. Um, and, and I find that experiential kind of uh, exercise really important. I mean, it's obviously something I did a lot in the in, in my intelligence career, but but doing it now in my current role, a lot of our recent reports and papers um, have have been drawn out of scenarios exercises. And I think that's so important. You know, when I worked on the National Intelligence Council and, and worked on the Global Trends Project, my my first boss at the time, she said that the process was more important than the final product of global trends because the process of engaging with policy folks, talking to them about the future, talking to them about how their decisions today affect that future, um, giving them some insight into trends just made a big difference in how they made decisions elsewhere, right? And, and mm-hmm. I think that can really help. And, and then finding, finding places where there are co-benefits, right? That what you're encouraging people to do and take action on doesn't just help related to climate change, yeah. but can help them today say, in competition with China, for example. I think there are all sorts of opportunities for the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific to support allies and partners, right, who put climate change on the top of their security threat list when you Mm -hmm. ask them. And by helping them build resilience to climate change in the Pacific Islands, in ASEAN nations, that doesn't just help them with climate change. It helps us in, in building better relationships with allies and partners that we want on our side in that competition. And so identifying those opportunities, I think, can be really powerful as well. Yeah, I, I, my, I found myself, as you were saying that, going to, well, benefits of addressing climate change. This is the idea of the green jobs, right? If, if, you, yes. if you want to convince the average congressperson that you know, supporting renewable energy is a good idea, 
show them that the future of jobs for their constituents are in this area. And being a global leader on this technology and the manufacturing related to it um, would be huge. So, but I, but I hadn't thought directly about the issue, the more geopolitical issue, which is if you're talking to some of the island Pacific, the Pacific Island nations, it's an existential threat. And there is obviously a security benefit when it comes to positional relationships vis-a-vis -vis China, if you address this threat. Uh, right. So it is about finding those linkages. It's also about arming the people to whom the politicians and the policymakers respond, the, the general public. And yep. the general public, to, to put a broad stroke on it, has been uh, at least skeptical of and hesitant to fully embrace the implications of climate change and, and changing common behaviors, right? So I think there's plenty of positive evidence where you'll find people and activists who are able to get people to do things like, well, okay, I don't like it, but I'll use a paper straw instead of a plastic straw. <laughs> or, you know, I will, I will tweet out things in favor of climate change. But the slacktivism tendency then kicks in, which is you've done something like the straws, which does not make a significant difference uh, for pollution, or you've, you've tweeted something and you feel like you've done something, therefore you don't actually invest in the real action it takes at a political or a social level. Um, how do you feel about where the public is in the US on climate change right now Overall, do you think you've seen significant movement in the time that you've been focused on global issues generally and climate issues in particular? I, I do think we've seen a, a positive trend of folks. And you look at the polling on this, I mean, it, it bears it out of, of caring and being concerned about climate change. I think, again, the, the big driver of this is they're experiencing it in their da daily lives. So that's not a good thing, but, but it, it's tangible. I, what I found in my work in the in the security nexus piece is that the messenger matters, right? And we have an advisory board full of former military and national security folks. And when when those folks go out and write op eds or they talk to communities about climate change and why it's a security threat, that that changes the context a bit for folks. And you can reach some people you might not reach um, with a science message or with a more activist message. So I think that helps. I, I do think, you know, a, a friend of mine who's a re reporter on, on climate pointed out to me that he thought one of the challenges we face in the U.S. with getting action on climate change is because the country is so big that every person experiences climate change in a different way. So it's hard to get that kind of galvanized action. So in California, you got fires and, and drought, but in Louisiana, you have hurricanes and flooding. And, and it, it's, even though it's a global issue, it's felt locally. And so then the, the challenge of, of catalyzing that kind of national action can be hard. Um, but I, I'm pleasantly surprised, frankly. My cynical self is pleasantly surprised by the, uh, the, the agreement between Senator Manchin and, and, and Schumer and this legislation mm -hmm. in Congress. I think that in large part has to do with people's concerns about about climate i think also framing it as the inflation reduction act we can joke about that but i think that's a good a good way to do it because it's true um and that's what people care about so i'm i'm I, i'm glass half full i think <laughs> <laughs> which is not not normal for me but on on the where the population's at and, and their concerns about climate i think one last thing I'll say is I think one of the challenges now, though, is that it is the 
the crises are acute. So if you're in Kentucky these past few days and you're facing flooding, right, and your home's been destroyed, your community's been destroyed, you're not thinking about long-term cutting emissions, right? You're thinking about how do I rebuild my house and how do I adapt so it doesn't happen again? And so I think that can be a challenge too, is there's this immediate threat that's happened in your community um, and tying that to a longer term change can be hard, but mm-hmm. um, hopefully uh, we're on a, a, a better path than we were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. You know, a big part of that public movement on the issue, which which then filters through policymakers and, and representatives, a, a big part of that is pop culture and how pop culture mm-hmm. looks at the issue and represents the issue, because sadly, not every member of the US public is reading your reports on climate change and security. (laughs) That would change things overnight, but that's not happening. Instead, Hollywood plays a big role here. And I was thinking about what, what major films have I seen where climate change played a, a major role? And I immediately realized there's really two categories here. There, there's one category of films that has climate change in it, but it's almost like a springboard to the plot. It's And sometimes these are called climate change movies, but they're really not. They're science fiction action adventures, or they're a drama or a, even a comedy, but but they really have climate change as the, the spur for developments, but it's not the core of the story. And here I'm thinking about things like Avatar, one of the most watched movies ever worldwide. And yes, there is a climate change element to it. You know, Earth is having big problems and we have to go to this other (laughs) planet to find this rare material. But the movie ain't really about climate change. It puts it on people's radar, perhaps. But I'm not sure the movies like Avatar or even Interstellar, which I liked a lot more, that even shows some of the effects of some kind of climate change and uh, inability of crops to grow but the movie is about the the space adventure and the personal choices, not as much about the climate itself. So those movies, yeah, maybe they put climate out there, but I'm betting if you surveyed people who had watched Avatar, um, very few of them would say that climate change was the main issue of the movie itself. But then there is that second category. There have been a few, what I will almost call climate movies. Uh, the Day After Tomorrow came out several years ago. And that the climate change really was a character in the movie in in many ways. And then more recently, Don't Look Up, obviously very different style of movie than The Day After Tomorrow. But these are movies where climate change kind of is the idea of the Mm -hmm. film. I'm wondering if you've seen either one or both and, and how you react as someone who's an expert in the field to seeing this attempt to represent the the threat from climate change in two very different ways. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed both movies. I think, especially Don't Look Up, got some of the political dynamics exactly right. Uh, one thing I will say, I mean, both movies, it, it's an acute event, right? That's going to come. It's a big disaster that decimates everything all at once. And I think the challenge is that with climate change, that's not really how it how it works, right? Instead, it's more like the frog boiling in the pot right? I mean, yes, you have big hurricanes or you have big wildfires, but they happen only in certain places at at a certain time. And then in a lot of places, it's, it's a slow onset disaster, right? Where over years, 
agriculture becomes totally. unsustainable or totally. over years, sea level rises slowly, slowly, slowly. And yeah. then, you know, this community is unlivable and that's not dramatic and it doesn't, it doesn't make for good TV, I think. Um, but so I think that's one of the challenges with depicting these things um, in, uh, in movies. I think the other challenge, and you saw this, especially in don't look up mm-hmm. what that they did well is that, and why climate change can be a hard problem for the national security community is there's no, bad guy really i mean it, it's a, it's a it, there's no state to fight against there's no one to bomb right, right. <laughs> there's there's no one to uh to uh, bring to the international criminal court right like there's no entity it's actorless threat in some ways that that affects that crosses borders yeah yeah that's a good point the traditional ways of thinking about national defense and that's really what this is we're talking about defending right. the nation and the world the right. traditional ways of thinking about national defense are all based on adversarial relationships. So it's concepts such as deterrence and compellence and alliance yep. building. And and those don't necessarily have, they certainly have corollaries when it comes to addressing climate change, but it's not a one-to-one transfer. Right, right. You need some different ways of thinking about the world. And I, I do think those, the don't look up in particular kind of made it, made that point a bit, yeah. um, which I thought was, was useful. Um, I found actually, you know, it's it's not movies and TV, but there are a lot of really good novels yeah. uh, about climate change that I think do a pretty good job of of making the case. Uh, what are your favorites or, of the ones well, you can recall? Yeah, so I did read it's um, the Kim Stanley Robinson book mm-hmm. that a lot of folks have read. Uh, Ministry of the Future yep. was a good uh, sci-fi. I'd say it wasn't as great of a novel as it was a discussion of climate change. The story could have uh, wasn't was wasn't as, as great as you might think, but but it, it did a good job. There's some I really like uh, an author named N.K. Jemison, yeah, who mm-hmm. writes science fiction, and and I don't know that she would call her books about climate change, but they're clearly about a world in which something you know, has changed in the livability of, of the community. Right. Right. And how, how folks react to that and, and, and restart governance and, and, yeah. and change the way they think about the world. And of course, there's um, much more in the themes there about the connectivity to the earth and the, the yep. personal connection to earth in a way of almost trying to drive that out in people reading the book saying, you know what, you could be more connected to the earth, right? Yep. Yep. And I, th- I think the reason science fiction can be helpful in these cases is that some of the the changes we're going to see with climate change are not linear, right? We're going to have these disruptions, these um, uh, tipping points where if the Arctic ice melts to a certain point, right, or the temperature warms, is it going to change the Gulf Stream? Um, and, and so getting yourself in a headspace to think about those really disruptive kind of disjunctive mm-hmm. moments, I think fiction, um, can, can help you do that. Uh, and so I find that helpful sometimes when I'm trying to think about how do I communicate or talk about these issues or what kind of scenarios do I need to think about? Um, I'll often turn to, to novels as a way yeah. to, uh, get my brain in a different place. Okay. I want to play a devil's advocate role here on the, the, <laughs> on the fiction and climate change issue. And I haven't fully thought this out, so this may be easy for you to shoot down. Um, <laughs> when it comes to, let me address the movies um, instead of the books, the, the movies. Let's take the day after tomorrow. I watch that and it has these catastrophic, you know, over the top developments, not quite like the movie 2012, but getting close to it in terms of mm-hmm. rapidly developing catastrophes and 
literally flash freezing across hundreds or thousands of miles in an instant, which is a good visual effect, but you know, really bad physical science representation. (laughs) Um, I look at that and it doesn't actually motivate me to think about addressing climate change because this is some rapid aberrant event that is not happening in the real world, right? We're not seeing an ice hurricane, you know, category 17 or whatever it is that, that hits the, the Northeast U S. Um, and so it actually doesn't work for me as something spurring. It almost says, oh, since that's not happening, since what we're looking at is less dramatic, um, maybe we don't need to go to the extent that they do. And similarly, uh, don't look up. Um, it, it, you're right. It's not the same. It's a metaphor. But the idea of six months for this comet to hit Earth is very different from we are already seeing some effects and we can attribute some of the recent flooding, St. Louis, Eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. We can contribute some of those events to being more likely and more dramatic because of climate change. And over the next six months, we'll see more of those on average than we did a few years ago. And maybe six years from now, we'll be seeing more effects. And six decades from now, we'll certainly be seeing some effects. But there isn't something like a comet that we can track and and know with certainty when it's hitting us. And I feel like it almost, in a sense, minimizes the effect of the climate action metaphor there. Yeah, no, I would I would agree with that. And I think it makes it so outrageous that it makes it, you know, oh, well, this isn't actually something I have to worry about. Um you need something more like House of Cards, right? Or the West Wing, or you need some political, because yeah. really what it is when you're talking about the climate threat, mm-hmm. I think what's the hardest to untangle is less the physical science. Like we know what's coming, right? We can predict with fairly strong capabilities. We also know what we need to do about it. Like it's not a mystery about cutting emissions, but the problem to solve is how do you get governments and people to 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 do that that action that you know is necessary? Do you think so that we're really... Aaron, do you honestly think that we are at that point? Because you and I know that and we say, well, the the science is clear and we know that. But it's not that many years ago that Senator Inhofe was going to the floor of the Senate holding a snowball saying, and you still believe in global warming when there's snow. So are we really at that point yet? Right. No, and no, I, I don't think we are. And that's that's what I mean is like we Senator Inhofe doesn't know the the science or refuses to to believe the science, but but if we had that, if he did, if we had by, you know, agreement across society, across political spectrum to, to tackle it, we have the tools. We, we know what we need to do to tackle it, I guess is yeah. what I mean. Um, but it's getting people to agree to, to do it. That is the hard part. So it's really political and social drama, <laughs> right. right? It's right. that that is the, the crux of the issue. Yeah. Briefly, I mean, you raised technology. In, in one respect, when it came to climate change, you know, in terms of things like reflecting sunlight back and, mm-hmm. you know, reducing, trying to reduce the reduction of albedo that's happening because of the dynamics of sea ice and all of that. Um, Don't Look Up takes that to a dramatic level in terms of a kind of ridiculous Hail Mary plan to use technology um, to take advantage of this cataclysmic event <laughs> instead of preventing it. Um, but there is something there in terms of reality because there are a lot of proposals out there ranging recently. There's a lot more discussion just in the last few weeks about, you know, dimming the sunlight that reaches earth as a solution. Uh, there are all kinds of other ideas, some of which 
you think about and you say, well, well, maybe, you know, that that actually could help from carbon capture at one end all the way to, you know, putting a mirror in space between the sun and the earth without realizing some of those, the fourth bucket you talked about, right? The risks um, mm-hmm. of response. How do you feel about the technology side? Is that just a get out of jail free card that we're hoping to get on the next roll of the dice so that we don't have to address the fundamental issues? Yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I think on the one hand, we need all hands on deck, right? This is a huge problem and we're going to need a lot of different approaches. There isn't just one single solution. And so I think there's a lot of technological opportunity and innovation, especially on clean energy and carbon capture mm-hmm. that's important and small modular nuclear reactors, right? Like there, there's just a lot there that's important to explore and, and, and put on the table. But I think you're right in that there isn't just one silver bullet, right? That is that we can keep doing everything we're doing. We can keep consuming. We can keep using fossil fuels. We can keep, you know, um, on the trajectory we're on, but we can reflect the sunlight and then we'll all be okay, right? And so I think that kind of thinking is dangerous um, and and isn't the right technological approach. Um, There's a wonderful book by Elizabeth Colt. Colbert, who is a reporter from the New Yorker, she's a science reporter. It's called Under a White Sky, where she looks at uh, solar geoengineering, but she also looks throughout history. I mean, human beings have, when they've screwed up the planet in some way, they have come up with an intervention to try to reverse that that screw up, and often those interventions can end up being worse than oh, the yeah. initial screw up, right? Right, um, and. It's just a really interesting exploration of these challenges and and unintended consequences. Um, but also, I think her conclusion at the end of the book is we're probably going to have to do some of these things that sound kind of crazy because we've gotten ourselves to this point with with um, carbon emissions. So anyway, I, I would recommend that book to your to your listeners as exploration of these issues. And I certainly don't think all technology bad or, or the wrong. Dr- approach, but thinking that any one technology is going to be the solution, I think is is problematic. Some of our listeners are in the national security field and maybe in a small way or in a slightly different way are doing some of the things you did, um, which is thinking about climate issues within a security context. And, and hopefully this has been interesting uh, for them. Some of our listeners are scientists and engineers who may actually be interested in thinking about how this all affects some of their possible technological solutions. But a whole lot of our listeners are are not in those groups and are people who are thinking, well, what can I do? What is, what is my role if I recognize that this is an existential threat? And I'm thinking not just about this week or next week, but I'm thinking about my children or grandchildren or just life on this earth for people um, widely defined beyond human beings. What is it that you suggest that somebody who actually cares about these issues actually does in order to effect change? Yeah, I mean, I would argue for political engagement, first and foremost, both with their congressional representatives, um, but also at the the local and state level. I think actually that's where you're seeing some of the most innovative policy solutions on on climate and engagement at that, that local level is really important. And on whatever aspect of the, the problem or challenge you think is, is most interesting or important to you. I mean, you don't need to tackle it all, I think, either, right? There can be issues related 
to water security and water cleanliness in your community or food security issues or certain clean energy job issues, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. But I, I think that political engagement is, is key. Um, and that has the ability to affect lots of different topics then as well. And, and, you know, you mentioned the whole switch to, to um, paper straws earlier. And I think there's often an effort to push, you know, climate responsibility, environment responsibility onto the individual. It's your, do, are you recycling and do you use compost and all of these? How often do you fly? And I mean, those are important things and, and you can tackle them if you want. But, but to truly create the, the change we need on these issues, it's, it's, it's politics and it's, it's our representatives and leaders and engaging with them on it, telling them you care about it, I think is the mm-hmm. um, most important way you can make change. Right. Well, I am going to reach into our chatterbox, Aaron, and I'm going to see what surprise it has in store for you. Who is someone in your field or a related one whose work more people should be following? Oh, that's a great question. Um, There is a great uh, expert um, who works on migration issues, migration and climate change, named Kaylee Ober who is wonderful. She worked for the, she used to work for the world bank and did their huge report, which is always cited groundswell on um, climate migration, which is a topic you and I didn't even talk about today, but it's also a security issue. Um, I also really like the work of uh, my colleagues at the, the center for climate and security. My, my good colleague, John Conger, who used to be uh, the comptroller at the Pentagon and has done a ton of work looking at how the, the military can be better um, able to tackle these issues. Um, oh, geez, there's just there's so many now, which is wonderful. Um, that, and, that's and a so good thing different... to have to have lots of people, many people to look at is wonderful. But we will definitely in the show notes, we will have links to uh, to both Kaylee and John so people can take advantage of, of their insights as well. Aaron, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, David. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.